This is Education Matters, brought to you by the Ohio Education Association. Thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of Education Matters, your source for insightful conversations on the most important issues facing our schools, educators, and Ohio's 1.7 million public school students. I'm Katie Olmstead, part of the communications team for the Ohio Education Association. And on behalf of the more than 120,000 K-12 teachers, education support professionals, and higher ed faculty members represented by OEA, I'm grateful for this opportunity to delve into some of the topics shaping education and the communities in our state. And of course, the biggest topic these days is COVID-19. So let's bring in OEA President Scott DeMauro for a checkup on where things stand and where we go from here when it comes to educating our students safely. Scott, thank you so much for joining us for the first edition of Education Matters. It's hard to believe, but we're, what, 11 months into the COVID-19 pandemic now, almost 11 months since schools abruptly shut down back in March as the first cases arrived here. We've learned so much since then, but we are so far from being out of the woods at this point. What are you hearing? Well, I think there are a number of things. And and first off, Katie, thank you for doing this. I'm really excited about the podcast and and the opportunity to engage with members on a on a variety of topics. It's been a really long year. And remember it was, you know, finishing last school year and, and getting through already half of this school year. Um, a number of things that as I reflect on it that I think we've learned. Number one, we see just how incredibly resilient and creative and committed our members are. We have been working under conditions that no one ever thought imaginable. Having to shift on a dime uh, from in-person instruction to remote learning and back and forth and and having to teach through a mask and, and serve students through computer screens and oftentimes doing both at the same time has created, I think, more stressful conditions than we have ever seen. Uh, This is my 30th year in education, and and I've never experienced a year like this for sure. But, you know, people are are showing their true colors, and their true colors are that uh, everybody who has chosen to make education a career did it because they care about the success of students. And people are coming up with all kinds of ways to try to keep students engaged under really challenging circumstances. Um, so that's the first thing. I think they're just the heroic efforts and, and an appreciation for the work that educators do. What parents who have students who are remote learning are seeing, it's like, oh, wow, we didn't realize you know, just how hard the job of the teacher was. I think there's going to be lasting benefit from that as well. That appreciation for the importance of teachers, of our education support professionals, and of our public schools is at a level that we've not seen. Uh, interestingly, Steve Dyer, our Director of Communications and Government Relations, did an analysis and showed that the number of families that are choosing to use vouchers to send their kids to private schools, despite the legislature's intent to expand the program, has actually dropped this year. And so I think that that level of appreciation for public education is, is really high. There is no substitute for the level of connection that you have between a teacher or other uh, adult who works in schools and kids uh, in the classroom. Um, but, it, but again, it's created a lot of stresses. The, the other big reflection for me is that we know that there were a lot of inequities in the system before coronavirus ever hit us. And those inequities are deeper 
than they were before. And they're more obvious, I think, to everyone than they were before. Uh, whether you're talking about technology gaps, uh, you're talking about students uh, who come from poverty and just don't have their nutritional needs being met, you know, have so many social and emotional challenges and the important role that schools play in supporting them. So um, I hope that this pandemic has provided a greater sense of urgency, especially to policymakers, to say we have to do a much, much better job in directing resources where they're needed to serve the needs of our students, especially in communities of color, especially in high poverty communities, especially, especially in places like rural Appalachia where, where you know, kids just don't have access to resources uh, in the same way that they do in some of our more affluent communities. And resources are a big part of the putting education first policy that the OEA Board of Directors released at the end of 2020. It's a four-part plan. It made some waves when we introduced it. What are the basics there? It starts with the premise that we want to be back in school providing in-person instruction to our students, but that can happen only when conditions are safe. And it needs to be happening in a way that, that's equitable. So the four parts of our putting education first plan, which was adopted in early December, coming right out of the Thanksgiving break as we're experiencing this big spike in COVID cases that actually went back several weeks before that, is that number one, we needed a pause. Uh, we needed to basically do a reset where schools that hadn't yet transitioned to remote instruction ought to do that through the winter break and the end of the holiday season so that people who were sick could get better, so that people who were quarantining could serve out those quarantine periods. So all the schools that were dealing with tremendous staff shortages could get through those, uh, get through those successfully. So having a reset and then having a restart where every district as it was transitioning back to in-person instruction would do so following very, very carefully those CDC guidelines uh, and we were calling on local health departments to have an increased level of accountability and holding schools to an increased level of accountability to make sure that all of that public health guidance was, was being followed. We also said that schools shouldn't uh, be starting up any earlier than January 11th to allow for what we anticipated was a, an additional spike you know, coming out of the Christmas and New Year's holiday for some, some quarantine period after that. So that was the second part. The third part is that, um, and this is more bigger picture, longer term, is that our state and our entire you know, nation really needs to think carefully about reprioritizing education. We're still in the midst of this pandemic. It's, it's uh, as bad as it's ever been. Yet there are some people in our communities that want to pretend like nothing's going on. And if you can't get the spread of COVID under control in the community, it's going to be impossible to have schools operating the way they need to operate. And so let's put schools at a higher priority than non-essential services. And let's make sure that we're doing all we can to encourage mask wearing in public, to encourage the limitation of mass gatherings and encourage social distancing and things like that outside the school setting so that schools can be safe. And then finally, you know, to tie it all together, we need resources. And, and like you said, that's, that was a, a tremendous piece of that. Not just resources for schools, which we've been saying all along, but it's also recognizing that our local health departments are dramatically under-resourced. 
uh, haven't been able to provide the personnel to keep up with contact tracing and things like that. So make sure that, that our health departments have resources that they need. Make sure that our local businesses who are struggling have resources from the federal government in order to keep going and get through the, the economic challenges of the pandemic. Individuals who are facing the loss of jobs, that they have resources that we need. And of course, you know, states, local communities, and public schools uh, and universities getting getting resources that they needed. And that's a responsibility. It starts at the federal level. Uh, we were happy to see uh, at least some modest uh, relief that finally passed over the break. Uh, but that's just the down payment. We need a lot, a lot more done there. Uh, and we're going to call on the state to make sure that they're stepping up and doing their job to put education first as state budget decisions are being made. Now, one of the big steps to returning to normal, to returning to our classrooms, which so many people want, is the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine. And as we're speaking in early January, the state's getting ready to roll out vaccines to K-12 teachers and other school employees. Of course, this is welcome news for OEA. What is your message to educators and our members? We have been advocating for school employees to be prioritized in the next round of vaccines. We were very thankful that the governor listened to our pleas and followed the recommendations coming from the federal government and did put educators in that group of essential workers in the, in the next phase of vaccines along with uh, elderly people. We think that's very critical, uh, not just for the health and safety of our members and our members' families, but also very critically as a way of putting education first, as a way of saying that, that we care about schools being able to operate safely for in-person instruction. So we saw it as good news for students, uh, good news for schools, good news for communities, good news for parents, certainly, uh, and good news for our members. But you've said that it's not a panacea. It is not the cure-all here. What did you mean by that? We know that even though a significant number of teachers and education support professionals are going to be vaccinated once that phase gets carried out. But there's still going to be a lot of people in schools that aren't vaccinated. Uh, you're going to have adults uh, who aren't able to be vaccinated, pregnant women, for example, or uh, people that are highly prone to allergic reactions who aren't allowed medically to, to get vaccinated. And then also very significantly, students aren't going to be vaccinated. Uh, the vaccine's not approved for anybody under uh, the age of 16 yet. Uh, and our older students uh, are not in this round of, of priority. So it's going to be a while. And so therefore, it's going to be critically important that schools continue to practice all of those precautions that we've talked about from the very beginning, that masks continue to be worn by everybody in schools for the foreseeable future until COVID truly is in the rearview mirror, uh, and that we're practicing six-foot social distancing and sanitizing and hand-washing. And we're also monitoring carefully, uh, making sure that people aren't coming to school when they're sick and that we're using those good uh, protocols when it comes to testing and contact tracing and things like that. Now, it is worth noting that those CDC guidelines for masking and social distancing and sanitizing, all of those, those are absolutely critical to the new relaxed guidelines for quarantines for students that were announced over the break. Before students who were in a classroom for more than 15 minutes with another student who had tested positive, they were told they had to stay home for at least 14 days. Now that may not need to be the case. What are your thoughts on the state's new policy here? Yeah, well, we have said 
from the outset of the pandemic that it is critically important that any decisions that are made follow the science. And so let's let the public health experts, you know, do their job. And this was a study that was conducted uh, by the Ohio Department of Health and Ohio State University in cooperation with the Department of Education and a number of school districts and, and other agencies. And what they did is they looked at uh, people that had, um, in particular, students who had been, had had close contact uh, with somebody who was positive for COVID, but the person who was positive and the person that was uh, in contact with them were wearing masks and schools were maintaining a protective environment. Uh, so a very controlled environment with social distancing and the other protocols that we talked about uh, in place. And they found that there was no increase in the likelihood that those people that were exposed in a classroom uh, would contract the virus. And so they're saying that quarantine won't be required in those situations. So if that's what the science is saying, then let's follow the science. But let's be very, very clear about what that change in quarantine recommendation means and what it doesn't mean. It means only those people that had that exposure in that controlled classroom environment. It does not apply to after school activities. It does not apply to anybody that had an exposure outside of school, whether it was at home or at the shopping mall or, or anywhere else. And given that, uh, you know, school authorities have been saying uh, all year that there's been virtually no spread happening in schools. If that's the case, then it should have little to no impact. Um, but we need to make sure that we're holding everybody accountable. So a couple of things we have to be doing. Number one, we have to make sure that schools are not in any way letting up on masking and social distancing uh, if they're going to ease up on the quarantine restrictions. And number two, if we see that there is an increase in, in terms of incidences of, of COVID that can be linked to school spread, then we have to be ringing the alarm bell. And fortunately, the Department of Health has been very, very clear that they are going to be watching, continue to watch the evidence, and they will change that guidance if necessary. But the other thing is that we do know from our members that they get very frustrated when large numbers of students are not able to be in the classroom, then they have to accommodate them and, and essentially provide remote instruction while they're providing in-person instruction at the same time. This could ease some of the burden on, on teachers in that way. I think that's positive. And then we also have members that have had to quarantine who, who don't get sick, um, but you know that's created a, a real challenge and hardship for them. If if it's safe and they're not going to have to quarantine anymore, then that means that they're not going to have to worry about you know how do they manage leave and how do they manage working remotely and things like that. So there, as a practical matter, there may be some some benefits, but we have to watch this very very closely in every single one of our locals to make sure that we are maintaining safety for everybody. And of course, COVID nineteen isn't the only big issue that is facing our schools right now. The perennial problems, things like school funding, they didn't go away. We did have high hopes in this past legislative session that school funding would finally be addressed. The unconstitutional funding system, Ohio's broken school funding system, was finally going to be fixed. But that didn't happen. What is next for all of us now? Well, I want to look at the glasses half full. I tend to be a little bit more optimistic than pessimistic in terms of my outlook. And, and I think the fact that you had an overwhelming 
bipartisan vote. I think the final margin was something like 88 to 9. Democrats and Republicans in the House of Representatives saying that this plan that had been in the works for years, led by Speaker Bob Cup and, and now former state representative and OEA member, John Patterson, that this was the way to do it. And what was very encouraging about the whole plan is that it's a formula finally that bases the cost, the, the base cost that the state ensures that every district has of educating students on the actual cost of educating students. What does a high quality education cost? And then it also looks at, you know, what is a fair way to divide that responsibility between the state and the local community? Uh, it went through a lot of different iterations and uh, there was a lot of feedback, there's a lot of tweaking, but in the end, what they came up with was a formula that was focused on adequacy, making sure that there's enough resources to meet the needs of students, focused on equity, that we're directing those resources where they're needed the most. And it also is a plan that is predictable and fair. Right now, we have no functioning school funding formula. We haven't pretty much since John Kasich became governor. So for the last 10 years, there's been no formula. Every district in the state has either been capped, which meant that they haven't been given the funding that, that the so-called formula said that they deserve, or they've been guaranteed, which meant that you know, the formula just wasn't working to begin with. And so now here's a system that, that makes sense. The Senate put the brakes on it. That's very unfortunate. But Senate President Matt Huffman, the brand new Senate president as of now, did say that he intends to have the Senate deal with this in the course of the budget. We're going to hold him to his word on that. We are going to put maximum pressure on the governor, on the House, and on the Senate to make sure that they get this done in this budget cycle. And between now and the end of June, that is priority number one. We're also sitting on a $2.7 billion rainy day fund right now. If that isn't a down payment for a fair school funding plan, I don't know what is. So what else? What else do we need to be doing right now to address the needs of the students as the legislature gets back to work? You know, again, it's not just resources. Resources are the number one priority. Uh, but we also have to make sure that we have a system in place that sets all of our students up for success and success not as measured on a narrow standardized test score, uh, but success that's, that's all about motivating, encouraging, and supporting students in their creativity and their imagination and their desire to learn. We've been hearing from members that there's entirely too much focus on standardized testing. And so we need to take time away from testing, especially coming out of this pandemic, where students have so many needs, social and emotional needs, but also are coming at this uh, situation in so many different places academically. And let teachers do the job that they were trained to do to assess where their students are and to modify their instruction and give them the kind of academic support that they need to move them to where they need to be. But then also, let's get away from this idea that we're using testing as a cudgel. And that means we need a whole new report card. The report card was largely suspended over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. We should never go back to the old broken report card that everybody agreed just wasn't doing the job. 
Uh, we need to get away from this punitive letter grade system. We need to get away from a system that is so focused on standardized test scores and much more about what are the supports that schools are providing to make sure that students can be successful across the board. And then along with that, we need to get away finally from this state takeover law. It says that if your test scores are low for a period of time, that we're going to punish you by taking away local authority from your school board, taking away collective bargaining rights from your employees, uh, and we're going to put the thumb down on you and, and have a, a state-appointed uh, commission and CEO running the schools instead of the people in the community who know what their students need best. We have East Cleveland, Youngstown, and Lorraine that are all under state control right now. We have been working very hard to change that law. Uh, but all these things are connected and, and we're going to continue to work to fix report cards, to reduce testing, and to get rid of that terrible state takeover law that currently is in place. All right. We'll keep an eye on all of this as our journey with Education Matters continues. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been my pleasure, Katie. Thank you very much. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about on Education Matters, please let me know. Send me an email at educationmatters at ohea.org. You can also connect with the Ohio Education Association on social media. Find us at OhioEA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I look forward to hearing from you and to joining you again on the next episode of Education Matters. Education Matters.